right, everybody, we are back. This is Planet Psychom. We have Sarah, Jason, and Patrick on this wonderful morning slash afternoon, depending on which time zone you're in. And we're going to talk about some stuff today, because in the recent weeks, we have had some really cool guests, and we've talked to them about science communication. And I don't know about YouTube, but there's definitely been some afterthought, you know? been jump jumbling those pieces around in the brain and some stuff has been percolating to the top and so i wanted to sort of open it up at the beginning just to see what y'all's thoughts were regarding the previous few podcasts how do we feel where are we at i think as a reminder we should probably mention that so we had um dr chelsea parlette pelleridi in episode three uh, and she's a practitioner of science communication. She creates TikTok videos. She shares a whole lot of jokes on Twitter about statistics and data analysis and data science in general. Um, and then in episode four, we had Dr. Mike Cacciatore from the University of Georgia, who actually turned it around and interviewed us, was, if you'll recall. Yes, I Jason. recall that very fondly. I recall it. <laughs> No, it was fine. Yes, all those questions about what are you doing? What is your purpose? <laughs> Why are you here? Um, <laughs> and then last week we had Dr. Monica Fliu Moher, who is um, the director of communication with Ciencia Puerto Rico and has had an award-winning uh, communication campaign around COVID and mental health and health in Puerto Rico. And so those have been our guests, and um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've also realized, I think. The last episode with Monica was the only time that we got through a whole bunch of our questions That's right. before that. Well, Mike turned it around and decided he would grill us. And with Chelsea, we we barely got we through were, her introduction. We were riffing <laughs> off of off of everything that she was saying, I think, and and taking it down rabbit holes that uh, was actually I felt like it was a really great discussion and very organic. And we weren't like, OK, now we have to get to, you know, question two because we need to finish this up. So that but it was that... funny to no, go for it. Go for it. It was it was funny to get to the end of the podcast and be like, we haven't actually made it past the introduction. It's true. It's interesting, though, because that means that we had three different types of conversations in three consecutive podcasts. And I wonder if if that's OK, because I think that the more people that we talk with and the more we talk with each other, that there's going to be a more you know, prescriptive question-based way of going and presenting in some cases, but that in other cases, it's going to make more sense to have a more flowy organic base, depending on who it is. Yeah. Well, it's too late now. All three of those episodes are out there in the world. So uh, I think that's how that's going to go. Yeah. No, but, but it's a good point, Patrick. I think uh, as we interview more people, we'll probably get uh, you know, kind of a rhythm about like, oh, this this kind of, you know, a creator, we want to kind of ask these questions and we want to go through that. And it'll be, it'll draw more on the kinds of discussions that we've had uh, previously, because I think these are kind of, we're exploring this area. So. So better. Yeah. You're saying we'll, we'll, we'll get, get better. better. We'll get much we'll better. Get better. Yes. We'll get better at this podcasting thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think we've had three really great examples of uh, the ecosystem of science communication, right, with Chelsea, who does kind of um, 
social media work primar- primarily as a content creator. Uh, Monica is more of a producer for bigger campaigns that have sort of multimedia approaches that are culturally relevant or culturally resonant, which is what we've been talking a lot about. Um, and it was it's been interesting to to hear uh, kind of the humility and the lessons that she has learned right in doing those. We talked a little bit about um, how she has she had adapted some of that campaign and some of the communications and the content for the deaf and hard of hearing community uh, and the lessons learned through that. And and I had the same experience when I had um, included the deaf and hard of hearing community in a proposal. Uh, we actually have a school here, a school for the deaf um, and hard, for, hard of hearing in Salt Lake City. Uh, and I was hoping to collaborate with them, but I learned a lot about how you know, ASL American Sign Language is not just English translated into signs, right? It is a language in and of itself. And even now, sometimes I have to remind myself that that is the case. Um, but it's really important, I think, uh, to to remember that, right? To remember that I am not an expert. I'm an expert in science communication and in research in science communication, but I'm not an expert in a lot of these other areas and content creation. I'm certainly not an expert in every every time we get on this podcast to record, I have this epiphany where I'm like, oh, oh, guess what I learned about podcasting and how I should be editing <laughs> this this week. Uh, it is a learning process. But I enjoy that. I think, you know, uh, enjoying the learning is important. And that's, I think, a big part of it, too, right? You're interviewing people, but also sometimes being interviewed. But in both of these, you get take homes in a lot of different areas. You know, like I've definitely learned from every single person that we've talked to. And I think that that is part of the nature of what this could and very well should be you know, is that it continues to be a development situation. And that's very positive. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's really interesting uh, too. Um, you know, we think, I, I um, think about science communication and the things that immediately leap to my mind are English language and spoken or written. And I think it's Interesting. And obviously with my background, you know, I also think of science art as a, as a form of the communication, but there are other options and some for some communities, they, they don't have, they're limited, right? They don't have some of the options. Um, but there, there are other things that, that other ways to communicate science that might be really interesting to explore more. Yeah, and I I've really liked the uh, diversity of the speakers in terms of of just simply what they do, right, and what we get to talk about. So, for example, when we spoke with Mike, we talked a lot about the maybe not a lot, but we talked a little bit about the process of becoming an academic, and that clearly has an audience, right, a specific audience. And um, I just re- remember talking about so. Again, as a reminder, he's written with uh, Dietram Schwefel and Shantai Yangar this very influential paper on framing uh, that is a follow up to another influential paper, actually, uh, on framing in communication. And, you know, 
thinking about how many how many of us academics or scholars will write ever that one paper that gets cited thousands and thousands of times every time someone writes about framing, basically, right? It's kind of, kind of resurrecting these papers. Um, and I don't know that, you know, I think maybe at some level, a lot of us maybe want to be that person at the start of a career. And then you progress through your career and your priorities change. And, you know, you have experiences that lead you down these other paths. Like Jason and B, uh, I'm, I'm wondering how you, for example, got to the art section, right? Because, you know, Patrick and I, we have decided that we cannot barely draw stick figures. <laughs> it's true. Um, that's, uh, that's a really interesting interesting question, and I'm happy to talk for hours on that, Sarah. Thank you for opening that door. Um, I, hey, I wanted, to, I wanted to mention one thing. Uh, I, I, if you have feedback on any of the previous episodes or this one you're listening to right now, um, we started a Twitter account. We're moving into the er, mid-2000s or something. Um, started a Twitter account. It's at Planet SciCom, S-C-I-C-O-M-M. And um, what we'll be doing there is just kind of posting interesting science communication points. We'll be at questions or, or information. We'll also be kind of sharing when we put out new episodes. Um, hopefully it'll be a place for some discussion about some of the episodes. Um, and we might be posting some things like show notes and things on the Twitter account. So, yeah, and we'll be amplifying, you know, Chelsea's work, for example, yeah. Jason's work with uh, at Red Pen, Black Pen. He's also on Twitter. Um, so you can go stock Jason's art there. Always fun. <laughs> and Chelsea is at Chelsea Parlette, P-A-R-L-E-T-T. Yeah. So that's a that's a great introduction, um, Sarah. And the topic that we had bandied about was... Um, was for me to talk about some about my process with science communication. Um, and so I kind of wanted to start off by an intro, a reintroduction, um, done this, I think, on one of the previous podcasts. Um, so I am a scientist by day. I'm a computational biologist. I was trained as a microbiologist, uh, similar to Patrick. Um, and I... Um, I do science communication as a scientist. So uh, that's something I come back to a lot is that all scientists are science communicators. They just do it at various levels of, uh, of conscious intentional thought, I think. Um, so, you know, making presentations, uh, writing papers, talking to colleagues, those kinds of things that are very standard kinds of science communication um, about eight or nine years ago now. Um, so I, so to preface this, I've when I was growing up, I like to dabble around in drawing things and have always had kind of a visual mind. So things will come to me more visually. Um, about eight or nine years ago, uh, I was in my day job. I was talking to a colleague and they made some kind of offhanded comment. Um, and I don't remember what the comment was, but it immediately... I got this very visual representation in my head um, and I went back to my office and I basically grabbed a piece of paper and a pen and I sketched out this, this thing that I saw. And um, was it a red pen or a it black, was a black pen? pen? It was all, it was all in black at that stage. That was my black stage. Um, did you, did you sketch so, a red pen with a black pen? 
<laughs> Ooh, now we're getting into interesting questions. Um, yeah, and it was super crudely drawn. It was a stick figure. Uh, so I have long been a fan of uh, science slash computer slash philosophy slash mathematics uh, account that some people might know uh, called XKCD. Uh, it has super funny stuff. He, uh, Randall Monroe, I can't speak. Randall Monroe uh, is the artist and he uses uh, almost exclusively stick figures. In I his didn't work. know that. Yeah. We can link in the in the show notes yes, to him. Yes, we will link. Yeah, he XKCD has, in the show notes. You've probably seen some of his uh, cartoons or comics or infographics. Um, he is incredibly insightful in some areas and incredibly funny. Um, some of his stuff has really deep references, um, and so I had followed him for a little while and thought it was I thought it was great. And I was like, I, I could draw stick figures. I mean. Heck. So I, I sketched out this thing. <laughs> I will remind you that Patrick and I both said that and did did not succeed. Yeah, you know, after. Or at least I did not succeed. I probably shouldn't say that. Oh, Patrick no, didn't I didn't succeed. either. But, you know, the number of times that I've read stuff like Cyanide and Happiness, I'm like, I can draw yeah, that. Right. I cannot draw that. Right. <laughs> I cannot draw that. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I had the same thing, which is, I was like, it's easy to draw stick figures. I'll just do this and illustrate this interesting idea. And then I, um, I quickly realized that, that making stick figures, um, uh, communicate anything with emotion or with intent or with it's very, it's difficult because you've got very little to work with. You don't have any facial expressions, you don't have, you know, you're working with sticks to gestures. So it all has to be about, about the exact positioning of the hands and the feet and the, um, and the head. And, um, Randall Monroe commonly uses, um, hats to distinguish his, uh, his different figures. So a, a figure will have a hat in the first panel and it will continue through the panels to make sure that, you know, who's where, um, so I, I thought that was, it, yeah, it was an awakening for me after I did it a few times. I was like, wow, this is really hard. Um, so anyway, I was on, I, I just started Twitter uh, kind of personally at that point and I posted it online and I got, I got more like, I, I probably got five likes and I was like, oh my gosh, this is more likes than I've ever gotten for anything that I've ever posted yes. in the last, you know, two weeks that I've been on Twitter. I, I don't know what it was. Um, and so I didn't really think of it as science communication at the start. Honestly, I was just like, this is kind of fun. And I had some other ideas and I kind of sketched some things out and I posted them and people were like, Oh, this is funny. I get it. It's um, you know, it was uh, started out very much centered on peer review and the, uh, the process of publishing. So I think my first few were just all about, about that. And that has continued as a thread. Um, eventually I had posted, I don't know how many, um, how many comics and, and it'd been a number of months and I, and I came up uh, on this idea of, of naming myself red pen, black pen, because I could use a red and a black pen, um, two colors, three, if you count white. Um, and, uh, and the idea is that, is that the black pen is like, use that for creation. You're writing down the stuff. And then the red pen is for like uh, editing and, and um, you know, the other side of the, of the um, other side of the process. 
Yes, which sort of matches right the red pen for the editorial kind of yeah exactly corrections yeah. as well so yeah, what you're saying i should have worn my uh i am reviewer three shirt today definitely okay so so this <laughs> we sort of had a conversation about this patrick jason and i had a conversation about this before yeah. we started today reviewer two versus reviewer three but as a background for our non-academic because really who knows about reviewer two and reviewer three, like nobody should know about (laughs) reviewer two and reviewer three in normal life. Um, So Patrick, tell us about (laughs) what, what is the point of reviewer two and three and why does reviewer one always, always off the hook here? Well, I'll definitely go for reviewer three because I think you all have a more nuanced view of reviewer two, but what ended up happening was it, it was some, it was years ago and I just got this string of papers to review and I got grumpy because I, you know, they, they missed controls and all sorts of other things that made me sad. And so I was, you know, writing these comments like, you know, you can't do this. You did a Western blot and you don't have a control. Like you, you can't compare this to anything, you know? And so that happened a number of times and I kept telling um, my significant other about it. And she was like, you're totally reviewer three. Why are you reviewer three? Like, why are you rejecting these or, you know, suggesting major modifications? Like, well, they don't have controls. She's like, you're reviewer three, stop being reviewer three. So reviewer three is generally the reviewer that you really don't like. Reviewer number three is going to be the one that does the ad hominem attacks that, you know, tells you that you clearly haven't read the research that, you know, has been published on one poster once back in 1974, but is highly cited by at least six people. And, (laughs) you know, you don't have insight into your field and really just trash your paper in a number of ways. Whereas for me, I I don't think I was totally reviewer three there because if you don't have a control, I'm going to point out that there's not a control. Um, But Sam, was making jokes about me being reviewer number three. And so just to taunt me a little bit further, she got me a shirt that said, I am reviewer three. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, don't wear that to any academic conference. Right. No, so, next uh, week, so I'm definitely not bringing it. <laughs> so Sarah, I'm really interested to know if that squares with what you're thinking of when you say reviewer two, is that like the same or similar? Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Um, So I I was actually thinking as Patrick was talking that this is a really good example of how humor creates in groups and out groups. Right. Uh, Because I've been thinking about this like project recently and most of my projects are on humor. And so I've been thinking about like humor and the the social functions of humor. Um, So there's a 1998 paper, I think, about this. But, uh, you know, humor creates in groups and out groups. And right now, us, the three of us here and our academic audience is getting this joke about reviewer three and reviewer two, but we are creating an outgroup of other audiences who maybe don't experience reviewer two or three, right? Um, and so because it's part of the peer review process that, you know, maybe all of our audience knows about, but maybe not, Um the, the whole process of submitting a paper of research that you've done for publication, and then it goes out, sometimes blind peer review, sometimes not, to other people in your field. 
and they review it and right that is the kind of self-correcting process of science or self you know policing process of science my cat wants to jump in here she has a lot to say about <laughs> reviewer two. two i think she is reviewer cat- two she secretly gets on my computer when i am sleeping and <laughs> writes the so review writes and then it turns out that things. i look like reviewer so that means two. your cat is now the in-group yeah, she's she's pretty much in in every group she's decided. Um, OK, lest we go down a cat spiral, which I can do very easily. I'm really leaning into the cat lady. It thing. would be a catastrophe. Um, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that could. That is a good dad. Oh, joke. Keep, Puns yeah. are a good Puns, dad. Yeah. Joke. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Sorry, we need yeah. to get off this because it'll, otherwise it'll turn into a cat cophony. Yeah. Oh, see, we're starting already. Okay, okay. I'm gonna reel us back in here. So, um, put a pause on. So, in thinking, so put a put a. Oh, okay. So, well, just coming back to reviewer two and reviewer three. Reviewer two and reviewer three are 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 an inside joke in academia about. Patrick has just described reviewer three, right? The ad hominem attacks. Reviewer two, I think. In my world, I think of reviewer two as as the reviewer that asks you to do a lot of unnecessary, maybe unnecessary work and changes to your paper and manuscript. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, and I always think about it this way. Uh, there are a lot of comments, right, from reviewers that are like, you should do X and, you know, the immediate response is, I did X. You just didn't read that I did X, right? <laughs> but clearly, if somebody is not reading it, then then you didn't do it well enough. Um, and so when I think about this and talking to my graduate students, for example, because again, the reaction is always, well, I did, you just didn't blah, 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 right? Um, is to simply say, well, okay. I'm going to be angry for a minute. Maybe I'll write an angry email somewhere and I'll delete it. Do not put anybody in the recipient line of said angry email. Delete that email and then just do the thing. Make it easy to accept that paper. Um, But yes, Revere 2 is kind of that. Uh, I feel like I'm in a discipline that is maybe a little more friendly than yours, Patrick, because... I don't usually get ad hominem. Like, there's no attack on the author, mm. right? And I'm quite conscious about this as a reviewer. I, I never attack the authors, right? Um, I critique the manuscript and I may critique the methods, methods especially, right? Um, but I don't think it's a personal failing of the authors, certainly. And so I try not to do that because I did actually receive a review like that as a graduate there's, student. Yeah, there's um, some really, yeah. there's some really egregious ever, examples. Only one ever so far. Um, of, of that. I think, yeah. you know, we've all probably gotten some of some of that personally, but then if you go and look on Twitter, um, some of the discussions are like, you can't even believe some of the stuff that people well, get. There um, used to be, there used to be, oh, it wasn't a file stack. It was one of the, I don't remember what flavor of website it was, but it's a uh, vicissitude vicissitudes reviewers say but it wasn't vicissitudes it was another word that we're not going to mention um and it was just all these things that reviewers have written that are just brutal attacks i mean yeah a really good friend of mine from grad school who's an academic now who i will not mention for you know safety's sake just had their race brought up at in a grant review 
Oh, wow. What? Like in the written response to a grant. That's shocking. Um, Why? To what end? Like, why are you doing this? Also, Patrick is definitely the words guy because vicissitudes is not a word word that I have ever used in everyday conversation. Like, me neither. I I usually swear. I only figured out how, what it meant in context of <laughs> the thing that you said, Patrick. I'm just like, oh, yeah. Sarah I and a, I are both I nodding P- wisely. Oh, yeah, vicissitudes. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the PhD thing minute. to do, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah vicissitudes. Oh, no idea what that means. But, yeah, just keep <laughs> nodding. Keep nodding. Keep You'll nodding. figure it out. Keep nodding. I mean, how yeah. wisely. Yeah, you just, your chin. that's how you say the bad words in front of a classroom. <laughs> Use a better word. So, so I think this is a really great segue because one of the things that I wanted to talk about was, um, was, uh, you know, how do I come up with ideas for, for the content that I create? And I really, I, as I was thinking about it, cause I, I, it's hard because the process is not, there's not, there's no formal process. Um, you know, ideas pop in my head and then I, you know, translate them. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's slow and painful. Other times it's pretty quick. Um, but it really starts with a feeling. And, um, the reason that, uh, peer review and kind of this, uh, scientific publication is such a, a topic for me is because I'm in it. I do it all the time. And I am constantly trying to deal with the, like, um, Sarah, you, you made a really good point about your advice, uh, about like, it makes you mad, right? You get a, you get a review from this anonymous person who sometimes do you think clearly hasn't read your paper that is a great paper and should be read. And it's their job as it's their job that they aren't paid for at this completely on volunteer uh, time. And they're probably doing uh, in between everything else to, to read through your paper with a fine tooth comb and make sure that they've got every single point down. And then they give you some, you know, like, Hey, uh, you didn't cite this whole body of literature. And you're like, the citations are right there. Um, or, or that's a stupid experiment. That is exactly the voice I, I use too. They're just They're right, right there. there. Why aren't you not seeing them? Um, and so, uh, it, a lot. You know, a, a good portion of what my content creation is about, like expressing some of this frustration, right? Or this expressing the process. Um, you know, to say, hey, this is really frustrating. Um, and so, and it really is kind of an in-joke, right? There's a lot of in-jokes in what, what I do because it, it kind of speaks to a very narrow range of academics who are in various disciplines but have to go through this process, you know, over and over again. And those jokes and things like Reviewer 2 or Reviewer 3, it, yeah, it's really an in-joke, right? And I'm like, oh, Reviewer but it's 3. Also- yeah, but it's also kind of broad, right? Because you're not just talking about computational biology right. or microbiology. You're kind of speaking, you're really not cartooning, drawing about about a specific scientific discipline, but instead the the process of science, right? And science as an institution, science as a social endeavor, I think. That those seem to be what most of the jokes are about. Um, and yeah. I think the, the map is a good example, right? The oh, yeah. map that, that you've drawn. <laughs> yeah. So, um, um, example. no, that's a great example. And it's, um, it's definitely one of those, 
pieces, um, and we'll link to the the actual image in uh, the show notes. Um, It's a pretty detailed, you have to kind of magnify, zoom in on this uh, map. Um, so let me let me give you a short uh, summary of what it is. The title is The Map of Manuscript Earth. Um, it's kind of a play on Middle Earth. Um, I got the idea again because of this, this feeling. And the feeling is when you're in the middle of writing a paper to try to get it submitted to a, a, a um journal, it can feel like a just a totally grueling process. Like you are just like 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 you're on this journey that's never going to end and you it's hard to see the end point and i then i was like that feeling is something that i've seen recently or felt or you know recently and i was like oh it's like lord of the rings where you know they're taking this ring to it's an evil ring and they're taking it to cast it into the pit of doom and i was like oh that'd be funny like that would be funny to have like oh instead of the ring you have your manuscript and you're casting it into the pit of doom but the pit of doom is actually casting it into the review process right you're like i am so done with this i'm throwing it and you've gone through all of these different adventures and so When I got to that point, sometime in that process, I was like, I was like, hey, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien at the start of the Lord of the Rings had actually um, drawn out this map that I thought was kind of a cool perspective. Um, It is like not like a, you know, topographical map or a street map or something. It kind of has these big general regions that are that are important to the story and kind of they're sequential because the journey is sequential, right. Of, um, in the Lord of the Rings. And then I was like, that would be super funny to have like, you know, the Hobbit at the end, casting the manuscript into the, um, pit of doom. And then I was like, but there's a lot of other things that happen along that path. Um, and so that was the that was the genesis of that was really that that feeling of like never ending journey right you're 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 always somewhere trying to get somewhere else and it was just feels like exhausting um so i think it it was interesting because that was a that was an early piece that I did and I'll link to the early version and i literally after i came up with that idea i like sketched it out in a pretty crudely drawn fashion in, you know, like a half an hour and was just like, Oh, this is really funny. And, and posted it and got a lot of responses. Um, the, the version that it is now more widely circulated, I actually redid about uh, four years later because um, somebody I work with said, Hey, we have this, um, we have this new thing we're doing with a publishing summit and uh, we would print a poster of your, of your map. If you, if you, you know, agree to it and we could have it as kind of a, thing in this in this hall where people are walking by and they could talk to you and stuff and i was like that'd be awesome but if i printed this large it's gonna look like crap because it's like really really crudely drawn and so then i was like okay i'll do it you know i did this like uh process where i where i put together a whole bunch of new ideas and got some ideas from twitter and put it together into this larger map and printed it out anyway i'm gonna have to print one out and and put in my office and pin where i am exactly people do that yeah how great would that be if you had a magnetized version of it and you could just put different manuscripts at different points in the process and then add another <laughs> thought to add to that. 
you could also have an interactive one for when you have groups writing yes. papers. Then there's oh. the fellowship of the papers. Oh my so gosh, people, the fellowship of the parties. paper. The fellowship of the papers. So I so interestingly, I didn't think of actually using the map in a physical sense. Um I have a version of it uh uh up on my Redbubble store, um, pointer, um, to, uh, to, for people to buy and print out. You can also print it out off of the, off of the internet. You can just hurry off of the Twitter post. You, it, it's just a better quality. You can get a large size poster. And so I've seen, uh, some friends, but also a lot of other people, uh, who have one of these up in their lab and they're doing exactly that. They don't have a magnetized version. Magnetized version is really good idea. Um, but they have different lab members or different papers marked out like with stickers or something on the on their way for <laughs> manuscript submission. I really like the idea of an interactive map though. The yeah. fellowship of the paper is like wow. Should be a game. It, yeah. Totally. A game would be awesome. And people have suggested oh, it should be a that. Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> game. I mean there should be yeah. a D and D game. Totally. Yeah. I have so Jason, yeah. you just gave Sarah and Jason, when you were talking about that with D&D, right, we have a group situation. Jason, you were talking about that there's a bigger version. I wonder if this PSYCOM could be used for teaching. Oh. Because inevitably at the beginning of grad school, I don't know about y'all, I was a noob at the beginning of grad school. and I had never yeah. written a paper. I, I had my name on a paper for some stuff I did, but I had never written a paper. I did not know what went into a paper. Jason, I wonder if this presents an opportunity to do like even a video, even like yeah. a, a, a one of those awesome animated videos where the words like come in really well, yeah, and yeah, really yeah. well produced, but to like teach what a paper is and how to write it using a humorous lens in the map That's of a, a paper. That is a great idea. And I, I, you know, with all your free time. to me. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, but I, but I like that idea because, um, one of the questions that I was wrestling with is, um, and I have wrestled with for a while is that I, I like to think of my work as, as SciComm, as science communication, and it's more about the process of science, which I think is an important, as Sarah mentioned, and, mm -hmm. and it's an important area, right. To kind of like the process of how, peer review and scientific process and all that um, is really important. But it, sometimes I feel like, oh, I should be doing infographics about these complex, you know, uh, topics in molecular pathways or something like that. And I've tried some of that. And it's, for me, that's not where my passion lies. I'm not that effective. There are some people who do great work in that area. And um, we can definitely link to some of those um, in the car cartoon comic artists who, who spend a lot more time thinking about the scientific concepts. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I like that idea a lot, which is it kind of a guide, right? You could, you could walk through all these different locations and you could say, okay, this is funny, but really it's about this process. And the process is you need to figure out who's going to be co-authors on your paper. And that process actually is something that's hidden a lot. And especially in these large collaborative papers that are mm. becoming more and more the norm, like how does that happen? And how do you figure out who's going to be the first author and who's going to be the senior author? And those fights can, those 
sorry, those discussions can get <laughs> can get heated, Feisty. right? Feisty. Oh, Jason, there's your next comic. It's a D&D circle of professors to determine the authorship <laughs> list and you know, yeah. random second year grad student. Oh, that's just, great. Random second year grad student just drops a nat 20. <laughs> roll, <laughs> roll for first authorship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but they should have yeah, different yeah, yeah, attributes yeah. that oh, wow. you know. This is opening yeah, up so many different role. avenues, you guys. You, you have no this idea. This is also giving our listeners a big clue into the level of nerddom oh, that totally. is. Which I, I totally embrace. Like, I, I I remember I've only tried uh, D&D one time, like the actual game one time. I got to the end of character creation, which was three hours in. And I was like, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. I'm done now. Um, well, yeah, that's where you pick up next time. <laughs> right, right, right. But, you know, then but, you've, got your, um, I, yeah. you've got your technician with all your spell slots, right? Yeah. <laughs> but is like low in grant writing. Right. You've got your <laughs> you've got your bio in for magician. I've already thought of this bio one. So in for magician. Yeah. So oh, the technician that Patrick is talking about, of course, is a lab technician, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Sorry, that was yeah, more for yeah. hands on yeah. sciences. Um, as, yeah. as I, I I actually, right. I actually wrestle with that, too, because I used to be a hands on bench scientist a long, long time ago. And so some of my some of my jokes come from that. Um so like uh, I have a I have several different comics that I've written about uh, minus eighty freezers and we've discussed minus eighty freezers on the and how they're just like this horrible piece of technology that has to Wait, operate. Tell us what we what we use minus eighty freezers for. Everything evil. <laughs> so these are freezers that are at negative eighty degrees Celsius. So very very, very cold. cold. Cryogenic yeah. stasis. Generally, what they're for and for cells and bacteria and other kinds of uh other kinds of delicate biomolecules that uh will perish at higher temperatures and so these can be like people labs you literally have libraries of different experiments that they've done that are basically put in this archive in a minus 80 freezer and they might have other samples that are super valuable um and it looks like a big um like a bank vault or something like that. It's big. They're big and bulky. They have a huge like compressor and stuff on the bottom. And then they have this like latch that you have to like, uh, you know, sometimes muscle closed when the, when they start to get fr frozen around the outside. Yes. I remember cleaning out the minus oh. 80 freezer was always a huge pain. And you've got these like gloves on these bulky gloves on because you can't just reach in there and touch stuff. Cause you know, and you can't pull the, you can't, to it. you can't pull the samples out and leave them on the counter for an hour while you clean out the rest of it because then no. you'll kill everything that's done. In right. So you have to have at least two so you can put them in the uh, other minus 80, but the other minus 80 is so full that you're just like trying to stuff things. It's the, like the struggle is yeah, real. It's like the struggle. It, it's like if your fridge were extremely cold that you couldn't handle it without oven mitt and then also extremely full of food that you've had for years and years and decades. I may want to maybe. eat that in another three years again. Exactly. I'm going to taste point. it. That's right. We need to make sure yeah. that the food is still food. Because we're going to come back to it at some point, but nobody knows when. But those meatballs from right. 20 from 2002, 
those are going to be great in 10 years. So, so know. you say meatballs, you say meatballs, but we had a minus 80 fridge that was a uh, freezer that was decommissioned in our micro department. And uh, so after it had thawed um, and people had taken out their important and current samples, there was still a bunch of stuff left in there. And so it was uh, mine and a couple of other people in the lab's job to go and clean it out. And we found literally uh, foil wrapped organs that had been back in the back of the freezer that weren't dated that we didn't know what they were they were kind of labeled in a way that was just like and it was just like oh my gosh this is so so gross i can totally relate to that we had to clean out a a four degree walk-in freezer that had not been really cleaned out. So I think we cleaned it out in 2012, give or take. Which four degrees Celsius is the regular temperature yeah, that's of just standard the fridge, fridge like your at-home fridge. Right. But we, we walked in to clean it out and it, there were a fair number of samples from the early 90s. And we found some positive controls for stuff that I probably shouldn't mention here because they were very, very (laughs) dangerous. But my favorite was the really puffy can of applesauce. Don't know what was in it, but it was puffy. Wow. Oh, yeah. The realities of science labs. Right. Exactly. So, oh. how did we get on this topic anyway? This is, oh, we were, I'm not actually we were talking sure. about bench um, science. I, oh, I think the original point was that I was trying to balance because now I'm purely computational. I was trying to balance like mm-hmm. the kinds of in jokes and references that I make. Um, because one, I'm not really in that world anymore. And so sometimes the jokes that I make are way outdated um or i try to try to make and you know like oh people don't do that anymore i mean even pcr jokes can be kind of like people don't really do pcr we used to do our own sequencing gel so this is to 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 figure out the the sequence of dna you now send it off somewhere where they do a really great job um and in the early days you would do all the reactions yourself and then you would carefully pipette these different reactions into an acrylamide gel, which was really, really thin and usually had lots of bubbles in it because you'd pour it yourself. And like, you make jokes about that now and people are like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what, like people who are working in the lab doing sequencing, it's totally different Wait, now. Wait, you don't make gels anymore? Not sequencing gels. gels and not sequencing gels. Uh, oh, okay. Other okay. kinds of gels, okay. yes. Well, okay, I mean, I, I, oh, okay, I see. Yeah, I'm, way out of the loop on this but um so to to reel us back in because our audience is i'm sure not interested in acrylamide gels uh or bubbles instead of acrylamide gels which bubbles oh. are a real pain oh, let's get started Ugh. on that topic right now yeah uh <laughs> yeah, throw down. yeah because probably they're not interested in that i i was gonna ask jason um Aside from demonstrating your artistic chops and lording those over (laughs) me and Patrick, (laughs) why, why do you do, why do you do the art? Why do you cartoon? Why do you draw the things you draw? What is your raison d'etre? What is, what is that? Um, As an artist, or at least as a, as a science you know, communication artist, if we've established this is close enough to science communication, we can call it that. Um, I do it for a couple of reasons. I do it for a, a lot of it is a, a, I mentioned this earlier, is kind of a, is kind of a release. It's a like, this is super frustrating. If I make it funny, 
and I can express some kinds of frustration that are that I can kind of let go. Like making yeah. it funny mm-hmm. makes it makes it more approachable and makes it a little bit like, oh, this is frustrating, but there's also some humor in it. Um, oh, this is super great. So I, yeah. And and um, one thing, kind of the frustration and making it okay, really ties into, I've been reading a lot about humor and what, like humor appreciation. And one of the prevailing theories on why people think things are funny or or what makes something funny is this idea of benign violation, right? And the words oh. are, you know, that, uh, it are, could they, be are these like, vicissitudes? I'm I'm yeah, still unclear yeah. on vicissitudes. <laughs> the words <laughs> Wait, are no, not, not important, okay. but the, <laughs> the idea is that like there is something that is a violation to uh, a value you hold or um Something that is a violation can be very, very, uh, can be a very small violation, right? When we say the word violation in everyday language, we think of something that is very offensive, right? right? And and this is not necessarily the case. What I'm saying here is the violation can be something like, I am frustrated with this thing, and that is a, a violation to me in some way. Or I can have this piece of information that I don't agree with, and that is a violation to my pre-existing beliefs, Right. Um, but then in order, so if something is just a violation, we generally don't find it funny, but if we make something feel safe, if we Mm. make something psychologically distant, right, suddenly we are, we are often able to laugh at it. So, I mean, cause there's that, that quote attributed to a lot of comedians that comedy is uh, tragedy (laughs) plus time. Right. So, so that says something like tragedy as a violation, and then time as psychological distance or safety. And this is why we can laugh at things uh, like slapstick humor. I always think of jackass, for example, right. like some of the things. Oh, my gosh. Are, They're are so, just so disturbing right? in, in a way, if you think about it. But then you're like, well, they videoed it. So no one died. So we're watching it now. So exactly. And we know somehow that that is safe right. for us, at least it's not a violation <laughs> on our person and that and that it's very psychologically distant. We also know it's safe because this is what they do all the time. Right. And so, yeah, so it's so I think interesting it's really, that you say yeah, that. I think that's a really interesting point. And I haven't thought about that. And I and I I think about it in relation to something I think about a lot in humor, which is metaphor. And you're talking about psychological distance. I think metaphor is a way to psychologically distance you from that pain. Right. So if you are like, it is really hurtful when reviewers say things like this. People are like, you know, nod solemnly and like, yeah, that is really messed up, dude. Um, but if you make some kind of metaphor, and I'm, I can't think of a good metaphor at this point, of course, on the spot. Um, of but if you make a metaphor and you kind of portray it in, in, a, in a funny way, um, you know, maybe it's uh, getting feedback on your cooking from your kids, for instance. Um, it can make it a lot funnier, you know, like, oh, this is like scientific publication only now it's my kids yeah. commenting on my cooking, oh. which oh. I think that's sad yeah, too. So-, <laughs> <laughs> so that's super interesting that, that that is why, like your reason for like why you do this, right, is to kind of uh, make those frustrations, those those violations, so to speak, like more acceptable and more benign, right, really. Right. Like benign is a great word for that, yeah. right? It makes it. No. That's also yeah. that's also the basis of the wordplay for vicissitudes happen, right? Because you don't necessarily want to go out there and talk about right. excrement, but 
you know, vicissitudes are like unwanted or bad changes that occur often by chance. So if you say vicissitudes happen, everybody knows that you're talking about something else that right. is, you know, a steaming pile, but that's not what you're saying, <laughs> but, that's not but what you're, you're saying. saying it, but you're not saying it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Humor is fascinating. I love that. That's the thing that brought us together. Right. You know, um, I just really, I really enjoy that. Um, but then again, when we think about it again, with the in groups and out groups and the social functions, right. So then who is your audience, Jason? Because, yeah, you know, and, and, and I guess to your point earlier, you said, well, if we can call this science communication, right. So who is your audience? And in that sense, can we um, maybe contextualize this type of science communication right. perhaps? Sometimes I think my audience is very, very narrow. Like I am basically creating stuff that, I'm not consciously thinking I want to target this audience, but I'm like, this is my experience. I'm drawing from my experience in, in bench science and computational biology in, in publication and the academic type sphere, even though I'm not actually in, in academia, I'm in national lab, which is very, very similar kind of environment. Um, I mean, it is, I think it's it's, close enough. Honestly, it's very close. Um, uh, And, but I think that, one of the things that surprised me is the the number of followers that I have from very different disciplines, um, even like literary uh, people who are like, um, you know, literary scholars and um, and what and, and I think that it, not every joke or every reference will land with them, but it's um, but I find that they draw things out, like especially with the process of of. Uh, you know, this manuscript earth uh, uh, map is a great example where they're like, oh, I, you know, this, I don't get the kinds of sciencey parts, but writing uh, anything is kind of like this. And you get to these points that they can basically easily say, well, you know, um, I don't have this experience in um, the scientific publication realm. So this particular word I would swap for something else. And I actually have examples from people on Twitter saying, oh, if you just replace this with that, it's totally like in our discipline. Um, and I, I find that to be really so funny, does, I guess. Does that mean that you're, does that mean that those parts of your work start to touch on universal experiences? I, I think so. Yeah. Um, and even if they're not intended that way in the first place, um, I feel like uh, one, like Sarah was talking about, I typically don't kind of deep dive into very specific scientific, uh, Mm. you know, um, concepts or theories or hypotheses or mechanisms or anything. I generally, that's not what I'm doing, except if I'm making a pun. And then it's like, I expect, you know, a few people to get the pun. Um, so, so that process, uh, so another great example in, in terms of the, uh, you know, scientific publishing peer review is just getting feedback from other people. So like my son is big into theater program. He's a freshman in high school and I have conversations with him that are like, um, okay, so you did this tryout and you didn't get it. 
You didn't get the part that you Jason, wanted. Jason, it's called an audition. audition. Hello. I, know. I, I mean, I, get, I, get, I did theater too. And I get slapped uh, it's down an audition, when I, not a tryout. I get slapped That's down. I'm, 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 I'm giving uh, the theater kids ride home. And I was like, oh, how was practice today? And they were like, practice is for sports. This is a rehearsal. I'm like, exactly. Oh, okay. How was rehearsal today? Yes, an audition. So, so an audition, uh, typically you may not get that kind of feedback that you would for peer review, but my Mm -hmm. son has been like, you know what, if I ask them, they will tell me, they'll tell me what I need to improve on and why I didn't, you know, get this part. It's because when I was dancing on stage, I was watching everybody else and I should be dancing, you know, knowing the steps cold. And I, and then I get to talk to him about like, that's really hard. It's really hard when you hear feedback on your own work or your own abilities that is negative in any way. Like, um, and peer review is all about that. And a lot of times, like Sarah, you said, take a step back. You need to feel that anger. You need to feel that frustration. And then you need to basically say, okay, move on from that. And what are they telling me that I need to hear and I need to incorporate into the next round? And I think that's really universal. Um, yeah, but it sounds like your son takes it with a great deal more grace than many academics. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. I mean, yeah. sometimes he does. Yeah. Right? Well, and I think there is something about that, that, you know, um, the the anger, right? Yeah. Like emotions are 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 challenging to overcome. I mean, they this is how we are programmed as humans, right? Emotions, you know, don't necessarily make us process information rationally. But when we step back and when we give it some time, when we give it some distance, um, what you can, I think, realize is that you and and this is ad hominem attacks aside, because those are entirely unnecessary in every situation. You should should ever include that. You should always fight the ad hominem attacks. Right. Always. Yeah. But if it's a critique on 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 the the work or the method or, you know, something theoretical in there, I think one thing that I always try to remind myself of is that these are people who are taking time. They're not getting paid. Nobody is getting getting paid paid. to review (laughs) your paper and to give you feedback. And so when somebody gives you feedback, that is a type of care, right, Mm. that they are offering some of their time to improve your work that ultimately improves our knowledge base that improves our discipline. But that's, I think that's true. You know, in a lot of cases, I think about like advisors in my graduate program who would give me difficult feedback. And that's because, and those have been some of the best advisors, right? I think I've always felt a little bit lost when an advisor is just like, yay, good job. Yeah, Nothing totally. Else. I right? the, I hate the, that from yeah. reviews. Like I'll yeah. write, you know, I'll think about it for a while and I'll write whatever it is I write, you know, and I'll say, you know, this is interesting, this is good, this is questionable. I think your interpretation of, you know, autophagy versus necrosis versus, you know, these different things. The things that can happen <laughs> to a cell. I didn't even get that right. <laughs> You're good. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you go into it and you put this effort into it and then you see occasionally in journals, they'll let you see what the other reviews are, especially for journals yeah. like MDPI um, and their stuff, you'll see it. And, you know, the person wrote three sentences and we're like, except with minor revisions, I'm like, do we read the same paper? 
Like, did you yeah. did we read the really? same paper? Like, I yeah. found these yeah. things. You said nothing. And I take, yeah. I mean, that bothers me. Like, why do you care so little about the people around you that you don't want to even attempt to improve it? And I don't write stuff to be mean. I want to do what Sarah said and, you know, right. try, try to think about more stuff. Right. Because, you know, I get critiques on papers and they often result in a better paper and that's amazing for everybody. And so if you're putting forth negative energy to just be like, check plus, you know, participation award, that's check not awesome. Plus. It's interesting. I have a number of comics and cartoons that kind of deal with that with the, with the emotions mm. around the, the feedback process. And, and one of those has a, not a punchline, but the, the line that comes from it is something like, um, uh, remember that criticisms of your work are not criticisms of you. Mm. Um, yes. and, and that I feel like there's a, there's a need for people who are receiving feedback, whether it's scientists or, or anybody else to kind of take that step back, to be able to say, they're, they're criticizing my, my work because they, and Patrick, that's a great way of putting it. You want to improve the work. Right. Um, but it can be so difficult to, to like, they hate my experiment. Oh my God, I'm a terrible failure. Like I'm a bad person because they hate my experiment. Mm -hmm. Like, no, that's totally not true. Right. Well, the flip side of it there is that, um, for those who are listening and have not received a review from a journal, once you receive the review, you get to respond. Yeah. And so if the person wrote to you and said, you know, I don't see this control. I believe that this was, you know, incorrectly assessed your, you know, whatever, whatever was maybe not there. You are allowed to write back. Well, actually um, it's in the supplemental figure, you know, X B and we addressed it like this. However, if you had an issue finding it, we have clarified it online blank. Right. And that might be that, you know, I'm not the expert on your paper. I've read the thing once, maybe twice, maybe three times if you're lucky, because (laughs) we all have lives, but do we though? Well, debatable, (laughs) (laughs) but in that case, you know, you do get to respond. And so if somebody points Mm -hmm. out something that is not accurate to your work, then you can fix it, make it better, or point out that they were incorrect in their assessment. And if they do an ad, ha- ad hominem attack, you should take them to task about it. And, and the editor, the editor. Yeah, I mean, but the editor should yes, take that up, actually. Be. Yeah. But I, and so I think, I mean, I mean, I, not everyone has gone through the peer review process and not everyone should, frankly, <laughs> but everyone has had some feedback on things they've done, whether it's in a job, whether it's in school, you know, all kinds of things, yeah. right? General, um, uh, here comes the cat. Doo, 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 doo. Uh, Cats are the yeah, harshest you know, reviewers. That's right. Yeah. But I think this is like a good response to to any kind of feedback that is critical, right? That, you know, um, yeah, because a lot of times it's very emotional at first. And then, but again, some distance makes it more benign, right? right? Um, but yeah, so so we I guess we should really be thanking reviewer two and three here because they have sort of sparked this impromptu episode partly about Jason's work and his creative process, but also about the peer review yeah. process and the process of science, which tends to be what Jason, you know, uh, not writes 
arts, arts about. about yeah. What's the right verb? I don't here? know. I've actually struggled with that. People, people Create. talk about car- cartoonists. Creates. Uh, cartooning. Um, but yeah, creates is Cart- probably creator yeah. is good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I guess to that end, then, if it is about the scientific process, are you, are you, I assume your audience is primarily a scientific yeah. one. Is that correct? I think that's correct. Um, they're primarily scientific uh, people who I would say a lot of people who are in that you know, might be publishing papers, might be going through mm-hmm. the peer review process, might be struggling with, with, um, you know, doing, how are they doing science? Um, but like I said, I've been, I've been, uh, it's been gratifying to see that some of my work has gotten, has escaped those confines, right? Like they, it has been like, oh, this speaks to me on a, on a bigger level and that I wasn't aware of when I created it. And that's been really, really gratifying um, to see that. So there are definitely people who, who follow me and I don't know that, you know, probably it's probably like every few pieces that I put out or every, you know, 10 pieces I put out, they're like, Oh, I I get that. I get that reference. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So I don't know exactly how engaged they are, the people who are further away from scientific realm. Well, you know, but maybe, it's definitely, you know, I think maybe they're studying you. Like maybe they're studying your communication in regards to metaphor or farce or pun or, you know, what have yeah. you. Maybe you are a topic of study in somebody's group sociologically, psychologically, what <laughs> have you. Whoa, hang on, hang on, because I actually have. My co-authors and I published a piece doing a, an analysis of humor content on Twitter and Instagram, but you had to have a hashtag, right? right. So it was something that the the creator tagged as funny. And so it had to have a hashtag of science or a hashtag of funny. But maybe you are in that study. I might Jason. be. Oh my gosh. I don't know. It's 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 all I'm feeling anonymized. very I'm we feeling don't... very mouse in a maze right now. I'm like, who is watching me? Who is watching me and studying me? Have I made it to the cheese yet? Maybe I made it to the cheese and I just don't know it. Who moved it? <laughs> That's right. They moved my cheese. Uh, again. So today, you, know, you make funny show. comments like that, right? Make funny comments like that. And I'm like, I've got a comic in my head or a cartoon in my head. about Yeah. Um, yeah. Moving the cheese has just reminded me of like moving mile. So I, of, isn't moving the yeah. cheese just a statement about an academic experience like you get the paper you submit the paper the paper gets accepted it's published so now you've moved the cheese to the next paper which the gets worked on and written right. and yeah. in review published you move the cheese to the next paper yeah but that could be any profession sure. right? right like yeah. i mean i i you know you have one project you finish that project mm. then the cheese has moved to the next project and that's, suddenly there's you know that's the other thing i think there's a couple of other themes that go in my work, which is like project management or project organization. Um, and that seems to, you know, when I, when I draw things about that, that seems to strike, some of them are very general, honestly. Um, and, and then some of them are more scientific, but those are kind, those kinds of things come up, you know, in lots of different, you know, everybody's, most people at work are working on projects and trying to get things, uh, things accomplished. Um, and how do they do that? Right. 
and, and also collaboration and communication. Like collaboration is, is, can be difficult. It can be one of the most rewarding parts of science, working with different people with different uh, perspectives and different skills. And, and it can also be one of the most, I won't even say frustrating because I, I think that the value that that brings is so high that the, 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 that the downsides, like how do you talk across, you speak to someone who is in a very different discipline and might be using different jargon that, you know, that's a pretty low, like, okay, mm-hmm. we'll deal with that because we want to work with clinical researchers on, you know, and basic yeah. science researchers. Yeah. Um, and so one more question, I think sure. here. And I think this is probably the hardest question. This is, I think this is the hardest question for any content creator, right? any any content creator doesn't even have to be science but impact what Mm. do you think is your impact here and actually this is probably a difficult question for anyone really because i mean somebody could ask me what do you think your impact is sarah as a science communication researcher and Uh, so so my impact is if i get two thousand retweets and a bunch of people mashing that like button i am in Mm -hmm. Um, no not really it's my red bubble. It drives, it drives traffic yeah. to my red bubble site. And then I get the dollars, baby. Um, yeah. I'm, I make, you know, I make multiple dollars per month on this, like more than one. Um, so uh, no impact is a really, it's a difficult thing to measure. Like if you're like, what is the impact of my work? You can kind of look at like how broadly it's distributed. I don't know that that's, impact per se. I feel like um, my impact has been one, um, moving some of my humor and and artistic work in closer into my work realm. So I've started to incorporate things in posters, in seminar presentations that include humor, include art. Um, and then I get a, a direct measurement, right? I can be at that poster session and stand next to my hand-drawn poster that is describing something about my art. And I have like way more traffic that comes in and talks to me and people mm. are very interested and engaged. And I can see that. Um, so the, the bottom line is you don't want to be stuck next to Jason at a poster <laughs> yeah, session. That is, is that right? Like, that, you don't want to be the poster like, next so to Jason's that may poster. Be, that may be. Or maybe uh, you true. do. Yeah. Maybe you do. Because then you get right. Oh, maybe the halo you do. Effect, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. There's, yeah, four, there's some like halo or spillover, yeah, but like right? Four down in either direction. No way. Uh, drops no. off to yeah. zero. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the other area of impact, I think that's been really gratifying is I, I mentioned that kind of reaching out, be, or not even reaching out, ex- my influence extending beyond my my narrow domain of biology and computational biology and kind of this niche that I oftentimes mm-hmm. work in and seeing that it's like, oh, this got shared with a, um, you know, in a, a, a urology conference, right? There, I, I had this happen where I, I went on Twitter in the morning and I was like, I just got followed by seven urologists. Why? Like, and then I saw later on when I searched for it, I was like, hopefully somebody it had. Hopefully, it wasn't your lab results. 
Yeah, that's true. No, it wasn't. This In this case, it wasn't. <laughs> Somebody had, had shared it at a conference and, and shared one of my one of my comics. And so that was gratifying. And I would say the other, oh, and the other places like um, people using it and like actually using it as, in teaching or in kind of their lab, like organizing our lab, like this manuscript earth, um, seeing that people are like, hey, I have this up in the lab and we're using it to track actual progress on papers. And that gets back to what you were talking about, Sarah, with that, like, um, it, it is a nice way to like uh, distance from that. Like if you're in a lab meeting and your PI says, where's that paper? You've been sitting on that for three months. Uh, I am really mad that this paper has not gotten submitted yet. Maybe a bed, uh, I don't know if people use it this way, but maybe a funnier way is to say, Hey, you're right in the middle. Uh, you're in this desert right in the middle. Uh, I'm going to put your sticker yeah. there. And, you know, you might want to think about moving out of that desert. Like it's an easier way to like break that kind of like feedback. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Jason, now we're going to oh. use your art for mentorship. Uh, a potentially yeah i would i would love it yeah. i would love to see I, mean, I think that would be fantastic yeah, i'd love to see people you know with that kind of like experience um you know to, to come back and talk to me the uh, so, the, so just to make a more positive mentoring right. type of relationship right which i think uh, i i i still kind of hear a lot of horror stories yeah. about you know, mentoring relationships from graduate students and no doubt yeah. humor can be used to be very cutting and, and humor could yes. be used in a, in a bad way. Right. Like, especially with mentorship, you can, everybody can imagine the kind of sarcastic or backhanded comments that might be funny, but mm. might really hurt. And so you yeah. want to be careful of that, but I think using it in a way to maybe gently lead into areas that are real feedback, right? Like, so, so you're not attacking, you're basically saying, Hey, this is a funny yeah. thing. You might want to actually think about this in your own work because lots of people are stuck there. The, the lots of people is a really interesting one too. So I was at a conference. I got this short story to tell. This is a conference that was in my, was in computational biology area. Um, with a lot of students, it was organized by students. The conference was really cool. Is it Wood, Woods Hole? Which, if you haven't been to Woods Hole, it's a pretty awesome place. Um, and uh, uh, so I was at a, at a poster session, and we we're you know having drinks and talking. And as as you often do when you don't know a lot of people, I somehow was in this big circle of people. We were discussing things, and I and I was you know weighing in, but uh, to the conversation and kind of had a few comments that I talked with a couple of other people. And one, uh, one, uh, a postdoc re recently, uh, started postdoc who I maybe exchanged a few words with. So I go back up, uh, to my hotel room after, uh, the conference center room, uh, after that. And I'm, on Twitter and I'm checking, you know, my Twitter feed and, um, I get a message and it's from this recent postdoc and he's like, Oh my God, I did not realize I was talking to red pen, black pen in that discussion. I am so like, Oh my God, like and total, like kind of like a excited, you know, like, and yeah. then I talked to him the next day and he said something really interesting. And he was like, your work has meant so much to me. 
I didn't know that anybody else felt this way. When I was in graduate school, I felt so isolated, but I found your work mm. and I found that I, that it was, it really helped me get through graduate school. And I was like, I was blown away because oh. that was like the best impact that I could possibly hope to have, which was like, I, you know, I, and I don't know, I didn't, I didn't go into detail. Like, how did your work help me? How did it make you feel? Right, right, right. <laughs> rate this on a scale of one to 10. Would you feel my work was more impactful or less impactful? Um, but I really felt like that was a heartfelt kind of like, you've created a, if not a community, at least an, a window into a process that I was really confused and scared about. And I didn't think anybody else felt the way that I did. Yeah. And, and I think this is sort of uplifting, right? This idea that people's view into science is sort of like putting a jigsaw puzzle together, or maybe it, it's a picture, right? Yeah. Where you're opening multiple windows and Jason, yours is one among many right. windows that gives us insight into the process of science. If you are not in the science involved in the scientific endeavor yeah. you know and i think this really is because sometimes i think what impact am i having as a science communication researcher or what impact is any single content creator or any single platform having right as insight into the process of science and you know i have to for myself i have to say well I alone individually am probably not doing that much, I think, but it's a, it's kind of this multi-pronged approach, right? The more windows we can open around this three-dimensional thing that is science, yeah. the better. You know, and so we do this through, through many ways, right? We have informal, in, we have science museums, we have science media, we have, you know, uh, education, for example, and, and this, kind of social media content, what you do, what Chelsea does, right? What Monica does, these are all opening windows of different sizes and extents into mm -hmm. kind of this 3D thing of and science. You know, that was presented, Jason, Jason, you presented and Sarah, then you expanded upon what I can see are definitely like three distinct flavors of impact. You have, let's say Redbubble. This is impact that is easy to quantify because it's monetary. You right. have impact mm. that is, again, fairly easy to quantify because it's numerical dissemination of information, spread of pieces, et cetera. But then you have an impact that you probably can't quantify, which is the individual impact or impact on small groups, impact on affect, right? Impact right. on culture and community. And so mm -hmm. for some of it, yes, you're absolutely going to be able to quantify it. But for the other parts, even if you open that window, it might only be a little tiny crack and you'll never really know, but you just have to hope that you're doing it as well and as accurately and as helpfully as you can. And it sounds like once you get some affirmation, you've already done that. Yeah. I mean, and I think this is a, this is a very uplifting place <laughs> to to end our our episode for today. Um, but last thoughts. Go, Jason. Uh, well, I yeah, I agree with all of this. And I think it's really been an interesting conversation because it has opened some uh, areas of thought for me it, personally about my work um, that I hadn't really considered before. Um, 
and I really like, yeah, that, that, that three different types of impact is really an important idea. I, I would say we could, I think talking about scientific impact and the ways that we measure it could be a really great mm. uh, topic for a future podcast. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank everybody for taking their time to converse about this. Thank our previous guests and hopefully our forthcoming guests. And this has been great insight, great time, great fun. It's wonderful to be here and talk about SciComm. And we'll see you next time. Have a good one. <laughs>